coach won't be seen tonight, so we can bring you a very special episode of The Gen X-Files. Welcome to The Gen X-Files. I'm Jim. I'm Adam. And today's show is all about Rollerball. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we're five, pas- five years past uh, Rollerball, so where's my Rollerball, Jim? They tried. They tried to make <laughs> know, it happen. I know. We'll get into that. Yeah. Um, that's just so effed up, by the way. They tried twice to make it happen, by the way. Yeah. In the yeah. 70s and then again during the remake. Yeah. Yeah, there was a – in the late 90s, there was some – they never called it Rollerball. There was always something that was similar to it. Yeah. Yeah. I, the, I mean, but granted, watching the movie, I'd be like, hey, I could get how people would enjoy this. Yeah, because it's violent. <laughs> Especially the last, the championship game. <laughs> when they throw all the rules out the window. No rules. No you time did. limits. No substitution. <laughs> last man standing. Yes. Um, yeah, man. Uh, it's crazy how a lot of these movies that we've been watching, like uh, you have um, Rollerball and uh, Soylent Green kind of taking place during the same time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, with kind of similar themes. Yeah, I just think, a few years apart, actually. Yeah. yeah, I think it would make a good double feature. Those two. I agree. I agree. Um, just like I think that uh, Zardoz <laughs> and Logan's Run makes a good double feature because they're a few years apart. Because those are pretty close. And, yeah, and, so, yeah. Zardoz and Logan's Run are and about you could twenty make, years apart. Yeah. You could make a case that that could be happening on in England and in America. Yeah, yeah. We talked totally. about that, yeah. and then we talked about yesterday. <laughs> That if somebody, if some stoner out there can get a, 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 a bug up their butt, yeah. do a cool timeline of all the 70s stoner sci-fi, and you could make like almost yeah. a yeah. universe where all of this stuff fits in right, right. Ge- geographically, timeline-ways. You know, it's all BS, but yeah, you could yeah. make a complete universe I've seen, I have I have definitely seen memes where people put in like it's the it's the movie universe where the you know like timeline and stuff it's not just seventy stuff but like right. everything but uh but yeah like stuff that's like oh this is when this happens and this happens this happens well because you couldn't like sneak Blade Runner in there well no obviously because it doesn't no. fit in with the, the no batshit crazy very different world <laughs> you know very interpretation totally a very yes. different world yeah a little yes. bit more realistic but yeah I just think the more we watch these glorious seventies stoner sci fi films. <laughs> And the films from last month, it's just, it just seems like there needs to be yeah. a unified universe of these wacky. I agree. I agree. I, I love, I love connecting things together. So I, I'm in that same boat. I will, uh, I upfront going to say this is the first time I've ever seen Rollerball. Yeah. Uh, I knew about it and I just had never seen it for some reason. Which is good because I'm always curious because I loved this movie as a kid. Yeah. And also I misrepresent, I, a lot of these movies kind of blend for me. Yeah, yeah. Like it's like I thought at some point in Rollerball that James Kahn got some strawberries and stuff, but that was actually No, that was Soylent Green. Soylent Green. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like that's how that's why right, to me right. all these kind of blend together because they all have the same dystopian, yeah, you know. Yeah. And man, whew, baby James Kahn. <laughs> I said this, okay. I'm pretty sure and I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that Adam Sandler based his entire personality on James Caan's performance in Rollerball. I was so uh, not prepared for the choices he made in this part. Hey, guys, I'm here in Rollerball. It's like, it's like what? Are you... uh, Mr. Johnson, I just want to play Rollerball. I, I mean, it's, play rollerball. it's really, it's interesting that, I mean, 
Because he's a very understated person when he's not on on the court or whatever. Well, that's the, the beauty rink. of it. He yeah. has no personality. He has yeah. there's nothing to him besides rollerball. And when they take that away from him, they're essentially taking right. his entire well existence. his yeah, his purpose for a long yeah. time was his wife, right. and then his wife got taken away by some executive. And it's like, well, then he's just kind of like, well, whatever. The only thing I have is rollerball. Right. And then and when his wife comes back, he realizes that he doesn't have that. Yeah. yeah. You know, that he's got... Yeah, she know, was irreparably, irreparably changed. Irrevocably changed? Yeah. She was changed, yeah. Irreparably well, might work. Anyway, anyway, yeah. Yeah, it's... Well, it, not even that. It's just he's... He's not... He's not a smart man, but he's not a dumb man. Right, right. And he's starting to realize things because none of... To him, none of the corporate stuff makes sense. Yeah. But to them, yeah, it all yeah, makes sense because yeah. there can't be an individual. He, right. He's, right, way, right. he's too successful for his own good, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. You know? He's Jonathan E. He does, Jonathan E. He does everything. But I thought it was a, a very, I, I thought it was a really interesting and controversial choice in a way. Yeah. To have him so meek and understated, but I think it really works in terms of the story and the character. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. It was very interesting. I, I it, it was almost like the movie had almost no plot. Like, it was... I shouldn't... A very simple plot. Jonathan! It was just them trying to get rid of him and him trying to kind of... Because, like, at least, like, Soylent Green and, and Zardoz and all these had kind of bigger, like, overarching, like, story. Or, right. like, you know... Conspiracies. Sociological or, issues yeah. and stuff. And not that this didn't. I mean, obviously, it's... Uh, talking about the horrors of the corporate war, corporatocracy yeah. and stuff, you know, and, and them taking over. But like that was so understated in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like it was so understated. Yeah. I mean, it, that's why I liked it because it was there, but it didn't beat you over the head with yeah. it. Yeah. It, it was, you know, it was the, the, the biggest example of that was the, the video corporate meeting towards the end. Yeah. Yeah. When they all make the decision to basically kill Jonathan E. Yeah. Try to, because try he's to too big for his britches. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And that's also when we found out that there are also women in charge, not just women that are. I know that was shocking. Or... It was very shocking because up to that point, literally, <laughs> women were just treated like objects. That's the weird thing about these seventy sci-fi yeah. movies is is the way that women are portrayed in the future. Whether it's Furniture Girls, yeah, in Soylent Green, you know, just basically yeah. they come with the apartment, or these, you know, uh, hey, this executive thinks your wife is cute. He's taking her. Yeah, I, I will give Zardoz credit at least that they were set. It was a matriarch, matri, matriarchal society. Like it was actually run by the women. Right. So that's why I was so messed up, Adam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With us, John Borman, he's Irish. Ooh, what does he know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway, take yourself back to 1975. Yeah. March 19th, Pennsylvania becomes the first state to allow girls to compete with boys in high school sports. My birthday. Hey, look hey. at that. Finally, one good thing happens on my birthday. <laughs> my birthday is cursed. It's true. You know, the uh, Iraq War was declared on my birthday. Oh, really? 2003. March wow. 19th, yeah. My dad yeah. died on my birthday. Yeah. yeah. It was 1972. 1972, yeah. A lot of bad things happened on that day. Yeah. But you well, know what a good thing happened? The Pennsylvania allowed girls to compete with boys in high school well, yeah, sports. But, but also, I was born. Oh. <laughs> really? <laughs> really? <laughs> wow. be a lonely right. show, buddy. <laughs> April 30th, the Vietnam War concludes as communist forces from North Vietnam take Saigon, resulting in mass evacuation of the remaining American troops and South Vietnam civilians. As the capital is taken, South Vietnam surrenders unconditionally and is replaced with a temporary provisional government. Yeah, we effed that up bad. Yeah, we lost that war hard. Yeah. 
<laughs> June 25th, Prime Minister Indira Gandhi declares a state of emergency in India, suspending civil liberties and elections. Yes, that's not Mahatma Gandhi. No, that was Indira people. Gandhi. It's Indira yeah. Gandhi. I just want to make sure, because people hear the word Gandhi. No, no, Mahatma Gandhi was not in power in no, 1975. Uh, but that very same day, Rollerball is released in theaters. Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> so Rollerball starts with author William Harrison and his short story, Rollerball Murder. Rollerball Murder. It was published in Esquire in September of 1973. Uh, I just, before we started recording, I just found... Uh, a, a PDF copy of it online. Nice. Uh, I just sent it to you. I'm going to post a link to it during the week, uh, during our social media blitz. Oh, cool. So if you do want to read it, it's only seven pages. It's short. It's very interesting. Actually, the, the first page or so that I read, it was uh, very well written. Nice. It's very nice. Talk about Jonathan E. Yeah, it does. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and also, it talks about the motorcycles, which I thought Norman Jewison was the one that, and we'll get into this, yeah. but like I thought he was the one that, but no, they're in the original short story, mm. the motorcycles. Interesting. But, uh, but different rules. They it plan out different rules. Like, you just have to get the ball past everybody, not like into a basket or oh, something. Oh, so more like football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Harrison founded and co-directed the Master of Fine Arts program at the University of Arkansas with his colleague and poet James Whitehead in 1970. Yeah, he taught, uh, they were teaching people how to read. (laughs) Yes, that's the University of Arkansas. They wait until they get into college to teach them how to read. Well, they learn their gazendas. Right. Two gazenda four, two times, four gazenda eight. Wow. I'm going to apologize to anybody from Arkansas (laughs) listening right now. Nobody's listening. That was all Jim. That was all Jim. (laughs) Uh, Harrison would write nine novels and enough short stories to be collected in three volumes. He mostly wrote stories set in Africa, which he was obsessed with. Interesting. His 1982 novel, Burton and Speak, would be made into a movie in 1990. The movie depicts the 1857-1858 journey of Richard Francis Burton and John Hanning Speak in their expedition to Central Africa, which culminated in Speak's discovery of the source of the Nile River and led to a bitter rivalry between the two men. Okay. The film stars Patrick Bergen as Burton and Ian Glenn as Speak. Uh, Delroy Lindo appears as an African whom the explorers meet. Uh, the movie was a critical darling but failed to find an audience. Yeah, it seems like it'd be a difficult sell, especially for the time. Yeah, yeah. But that was the only two things that he's written that have been made into movies, Rollerball and then <laughs> Burton and Speak, which is... <laughs> Sounds like a detective Terrible, movie. yeah, t- terrible title for what he was trying to pass off. Norman Jewison, director and producer, read the story in Esquire and immediately purchased the film rights. Uh, Jewison is a Canadian filmmaker who started in TV. That's right, eh? Yeah. 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 I wear toques. I eat back bacon. You know? I'm very polite. It's funny. That's pretty close. He's not quite that, but it's very close. Uh, The television production that proved pivotal to Jewison's career was the Judy Garland comeback special that aired in 1961, which included Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, and led to a weekly show that Jewison was later called in to direct. That's right. We got really drunk with her. She was still popping pills. It was a good time. She she made a comeback, that's for sure. Oh, it didn't last long, baby. (laughs) Visiting the studio during rehearsal for the special, actor Tony Curtis suggested Jewison that he should direct a feature film. Hey, Jewison, you should direct a feature film. (laughs) Jewison's career as a film director began when, when Tony Curtis's film production company, Curtly Productions, hired him to direct the comedy 40 Pounds of Trouble in February of 1962. That's what I call my belly. 40 Pounds of Trouble, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the film was financed and distributed by Universal International Pictures and was the first motion picture ever filmed at Disneyland. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. Jewison would make a few more comedies during the early 60s. The Thrill of It All, released in 1963, co-starring Doris Day and James Garner. That's a cute movie. Uh, Send Me No Flowers, released in 1964, starring Rock Hudson. 
And The Art of Love in 1965, starring James Garner, Dick Van Dyke, and Angie Dickinson. Oh, what a great cast. I know I've seen it. I don't remember it. I have not seen any of these. Yeah, I want to see The Art of Love, because I love James Garner and Dick Van Dyke. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Angie Dickinson. And, and Norman Jewison's a great director, so it's, I'm sure it's done really well. Uh, after the comedies, Jewison was determined to make movies that quote-unquote mattered. Uh, his breakthrough film was The Cincinnati Kid, 1965, a drama starring Steve McQueen. This success was followed in 1966 by a satire on Cold War paranoia. The Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. You know who starred in that? It's uh, Alan Arkin. Alan Arkin yes, starred in that. Alan Arkin starred in that. He did. It was the first film Jewison also produced, and it was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Nice. He felt that doing... A plea for coexistence or the absurdity of international conflict was important right at that moment. While the reaction to the movie was positive, Jewison was labeled as... A Canadian pinko! By right-wing commentators. Yeah, of course. Of course, yeah. He followed that with In the Heat of the Night in 1967, a crime drama set in a racially divided southern town and starring Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger, which won five Academy Awards, including Best Picture, while Jewison was nominated for Best Director. They call me Mr. Tibbs! Oh, it's such a good movie. Yeah, it is. Such a great movie. Oh, when he slaps that white officer, oh, oh baby. It's so, Sidney Poitier is so good in that movie. Yeah, it's an amazing movie. They made it into a TV series with uh, mm-hmm. uh, Archie Bunker. Carol O'Connor as, as yeah. the Rod Steiger part, and then Harry Rollins, I think. I don't remember, but I do remember the show being on because it was on in the eighties. Like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It was good. Uh, he directed and produced the crime caper, The Thomas Crown Affair, in nineteen sixty-eight with Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway, which was nominated for two Academy Awards. It was a great movie. Uh, best original score and best original song, which it won. They remade that with uh, Remington Steele, Pierce Brosnan, Pierce yeah. Brosnan, yeah. and Rene Rousseau. Yeah. Uh, which I know I've seen. I've not seen the original. I know I've seen the remake, but I don't remember anything about it. He's a thief. Yeah. She's a cop. Yeah, I know he, like, he, like, gets away. Like, the opening is him getting away with some big bank robbery or whatever. And And she's trying to get him. Yeah, yeah. But is she involved? Is it a big con of jobs? Yeah, yeah. Probably. Conna Jobs. Big Conna Jobs. Big Conna Jobs. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know what that means. Conna Jobs, yeah. It's the, it's the, uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's uh, it's the Latin way of saying con job. Oh, con jobs. Con jobs. Okay, okay. Conus jobus is actually Conus how it's jobus. It's just <laughs> pronounced. It's just uh, the common Latin is yes. con jobs. Conus jobus. Con- yeah. And I, yes. <laughs> Jewison would be nominated for best director and best picture again for Fiddler on the Roof in 1971. If I was a rich man, all day long, I it would win three Oscars, but the statuettes for Jewison would prove elusive. He would actually be nominated three more times for Best Director, uh, or sorry, Best Picture and Best Director. Best Picture for A Soldier Story in 1984. Great movie. And I've never, never seen it. The Harry, I think it's Harry, something Rollins, but that's the guy that started oh, in The that Heat was of the in Night. The Heat of the Night, yeah. okay. He, he was sense. the star of A Soldier Story. Oh. Great actor, very sad end. Oh. Best, uh, he was also nominated for Best Picture and Best Director for Moonstruck in 1987. Unfortunately, Jewison would win none of them. He's never actually won an Academy Award. That's a shame. Moonstruck is such a great movie. Yeah. I love you. Get over it. <laughs> um, uh, in fact, of all the movies that Jewison produced and directed, they would garner a total of 41 Academy Award nominations, winning 12. Jeeps. 
Uh, he personally never won one until he won the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award in 1999. I'd be so pissed. Yeah. I would hate to get that award. I don't even think I would show up because it's just basically a booby prize for people being, sorry, we made it's a like, mistake. Your work is great. Yeah. We should have given you an Oscar, but mm, yeah. here's this one. It's, it's the it's the booby J prize award for I know. people that were robbed. Let's and call it that. They, they gave it to Hitchcock. They gave it to Spielberg. They gave it to Spielberg, by the way. Yeah. And they gave it to Spielberg in, like, 1987. Well, Spielberg has won Academy Awards. I know, but that's why I was like, wait. The thing I don't get about it is that he was nominated for at least three more Oscars after he won this award. It's weird. I mean, they usually gave it to somebody. They usually give it to somebody who's, like, 100 years old. Yeah. But then they don't. Then, like you said, they gave it to Spielberg way too young. Yeah. Because, like, Hitchcock got it, which, granted, I think he still had a couple movies in him after that, but he was old. But I, 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 I look, I had written down a whole thing about how much I hate the Thalberg <laughs> Award, and I was trying not to go negative with it. The film he pr- that Jewison produced and directed before Rollerball was Jesus Christ Superstar in 1973. Jesus Christ Superstar, who in the hell do you think you are? That is uh, my mother's favorite movie of all time. I liked it because they said hail. Yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, having come off two musicals, Juice and Want to Do Something Different, and Rollerball was it. Well, it definitely was different. It, it was pretty much the opposite of Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, so William Harrison called up Norman Jewison and asked if he would write the screenplay with him. Uh, Jewison agreed, and they spent six weeks writing the script. I, let me clarify that. Harrison called up and said, please let me write the screenplay. Oh. Like, because he had never written a screenplay before, and Jewison was like, all right, well, you know the source material. It's fine. Uh, Jewison and Harrison had to actually devise how the game was played as the short story was ambiguous and more intended to just murder people. Uh, Jewison came up with the idea of the roulette wheel rink with the ball shooting out up top. He also came up with the idea of motorcycles to propel the skaters forward. Well, maybe they didn't have motorcycles propelling the skaters forward. I don't think they were. I think they were used as defense in the short story. I think that was the idea. Okay. Yeah. Um, and also the, the way they described the rink, it was more like an oval, like than a circle. Uh, so James Caan, obviously, was cast as Jonathan E. Jonathan E. I got a weird accent. I'm from Texas. <laughs> in 1974, Caan was in three movies, The Gambler, co-starring Paul Sorvino and Lauren Hutton. Pretty good. Caan uh, was nominated for a Golden Globe for his performance as a man with a gambling addiction. He was also in Freebie and the Bean. <laughs> Love that movie. Co-starring Alan Arkin, which actually spawned the cop buddy genre. Oh, it's great. And it's also got one of the greatest titles. <laughs> Freebie and the Bean... It's and Ten Speed and Brown Shoe are probably my two favorite uh, yeah. TV show and movie titles. <laughs> because they don't sound real. Both of them, now, you say that to somebody now, and they're like, oh, it's that parody cop movie that's coming out. We're going to watch Freebie and the Bean, and then we're going to watch Holmes and Yo-Yo, and then we're going to watch Ten Speed and Brown Shoe. Uh, so Khan also had a cameo in The Godfather Part Two as Sonny Corleone in a flashback scene. Uh, for The Godfather, Khan earned his only Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor, losing to Joel Grey for Cabaret. He was great in, in The Godfather. Yeah, I agree. I agree. In 1975, along with Rollerball, he actually had two other movies released, uh, Gone with the West, also known as Little Moon and Judd McGraw. Oh, good. Which was actually filmed in 1969 under the title Man Without Mercy. Okay. Which was released six years later after changing titles five times. I don't know. Uh, Funny Lady, co-starring Barbara Streisand, the sequel to Funny Girl in 1968. Funny Lady! Khan would be nominated for a Golden Globe for his part in Funny Lady. Uh, the reason Jewison cast Khan was because of his 1971 television movie, Brian's Song, with Khan playing a Chicago Bears football player with terminal cancer, and his relationship with his black teammate, played by Billy D. Williams. Yeah, that's the movie that 
every guy had permission to cry at. Yeah. Because he was a football player dying, so you can get sad. Yeah. Uh, only if he's a football player dying at him. Or a soldier. Right. Something tough. Right. And only one tear, one single tear can fall from your face. Well, I cried at the end of the Dirty Dozen. Well, you could cry one Dirty Dozen of <laughs> tears. Thirteen tears. A baker's dozen. Uh, he was actually, Khan was nominated for an Emmy for his role in that movie. Yeah, it's a it's a really good movie. I I know I've seen it. I think I saw it in college, but it's been a long time. It's super sad. Yeah, uh, they remade it. Nobody remembers who was in it or Did why. Not they even know it. they remade exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> it wasn't. There was no need to remake it. But it was. It was one of the first kind of tough guy cry films. Yeah, you know, yeah. where you had two buddies who were, yeah. you know, yeah, there till the end. You know, it was, yeah, yeah, it was a yeah. heart wrenching story. Yeah. Uh, James Conn was a bit of an athlete, uh, having studied karate for 30 years. Yeah, I did karate for 30 years. He also took part in steer roping at rodeos and referred to himself as the... Only Jewish cowboy from New York on the professional rodeo cowboys. Are... Yeah. Uh, or as Norman Jewison, Jewison calls it, the rodeo. <laughs> are you in the rodeo? I don't know hey. why. I don't know if Canadians think oh, that hey. it's called rodeo. Are you a rodeo rider, eh? Yeah. That's pretty cool, eh? So Getting on them bucking bronks, eh? I literally was watching a behind the scenes making of, and he said that. I literally pause it and laugh out loud because I missed everything after. Because who calls it that? I do, eh? <laughs> Apparently. The idea of playing a superstar in a tough sport was very appealing to Khan. He also loved the idea of acting against acting legends John Houseman and Ralph Richardson. John Houseman. Yeah. Khan would never win any major awards, although he did win a Saturn Award for his performance in Rollerball. He was a very underrated actor and a very underrated comic actor. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the, uh, was it Wedding in Vegas? What was the... Married to Vegas or... Something like that. The yeah. one with he... Honeymoon in, in Vegas. Honeymoon in Vegas. Thank yeah. you. Hilarious in that. Elf. Hilarious in that. Oh, he's great. He found a new... He had a newfound renaissance as a comic actor yeah. in the aughts and the 2000s. His third act was like him kind of being like, yeah, I can still, he's still playing the straight man, but he had great timing. Also, not afraid to kind of make fun of himself at yeah. that point, too. Yeah. And the tough guy image that he had, right. he right. had, uh, had and cultivated. Cultivated, yeah. thank you. And that was very important in the 70s to be a tough guy. Yeah. You know, you had the Burt yeah. Reynolds, you had the hirsute tough man, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. And uh, <laughs> see a very chest. Yeah. And he was a tough guy. Look, when he, we were remarking when he comes in and uh, he starts hitting the bag. Yeah. You know. With um, Moses' gun. Yeah. The when he starts hitting coach. the bag with Moses' gun, we're like, he's got a couple of big old oh, boulders yeah. for fists. Oh, yeah. And he hit Huge that thing. Huge fist. Like, yeah. Getting hit by Jim- Jimmy Kahn. Oh. Woo, you're no, not going to wake up. Not, you're going to wake yeah. up. Like 20 minutes later with a headache, baby. You're going to go nighty-night for quite a while. Yeah. That's right. Uh, he would go on to star in a bunch of movies like Thief in 1981, Michael Mann's debut feature. Absolutely brilliant film. I have never seen Thief. Such a good movie. I need to see Thief. And a great, great performance by Jim Belushi. Oh, nice. Yeah. nice. I think one of his first. All right. Uh, he was also in Misery in 1990 based on the Stephen King novel. Again. An amazing performance. Absolutely brilliant. Should have won an Academy Award. I agree. Award. Agreed. Agreed. He was stuck in a bed. I mean, it's just the yeah. the restrictions on that part. It's just, you know, those kind of parts are, they're like, oh, whatever. But those type of parts are the hardest because you have yeah. to do so much with so little. And him, him working uh, with... Um, Kathy Bates. Kathy Bates. The, them playing off each other. So brilliant. Also, it was such a brilliant casting decision because Jimmy Conn was always been the, you know, the formidable tough guy. Yeah, 
Yeah. And to have him be the victim, the guy that is completely vulnerable, right. was so effective. Yeah. And it was just – it's a brilliant, brilliant movie oh, and yeah. an amazing I, performance. One, one of, of the, my absolute favorites, yeah. One of the best Stephen King adaptations yeah, ever. agreed, agreed. Uh, and then as Jim said, he was an elf in 2003, uh, which I know a lot of our younger listeners obviously know him from, yeah. uh, from Elf. But, I don't uh, care. You're not my kid. <laughs> he's, he's, and his character arc in that movie is so good. Oh, yeah. Like, it is so, so great. Good. So believable. Hey, buddy, buddy, come on. Come on, buddy. Why don't you get out of here, buddy? <laughs> Uh, as well as uh, he would star as well in 88 episodes of Las Vegas, the TV show that ran from 2003 to 2007. Never saw an episode. As much as a fan of him, I never saw an episode. Uh, I watched some of it because I was working at Warner Brothers at the time, and uh, I would give, be given episodes uh, to watch. But I, it was fine. I mean, the show was fine. Sure. Uh, you know. And he was good in it. But uh, his last role was in Fast Charlie, co-starring Pierce Brosnan and Monica Baccarin, releasing sometime in 2023. Nice. Uh, unfortunately, he died from a heart attack on July 6, 2022, at the age of 82. Such a sad day. But, you know, that's a good run. Yeah, he had a, has a great career. I almost, almost all of his movies. Later on, he's in some stuff that's not good. But, uh, but for the most part, it, he always made everything he was in better. Yes, he's just one of those guys that was very watchable, very charismatic. Yeah. And he did the work. It's like a lot of those guys get shortchanged because, oh, it's the tough guy. Yeah. Oh, he's an athlete or, oh, whatever. But he's also one of those very – this part also shows that he's a great silent actor. Yeah. And that he's not afraid to take risks and he's not afraid to do things outside of his comfort zone. Yeah. I mean, look – Guy took a risk with doing a southern accent. <laughs> but he's from Houston, so it makes sense. I, I will be honest. I was fully expecting him to be the tough guy. Yeah. Like that great, brash, like dumb tough guy the entire movie. And then and it, and it, oh, it was so funny. I turned to Jim during the opening, and I was like, it'd be hilarious if the whole movie was just two hours of them playing rollerball. Yeah. <laughs> because it goes, that beginning goes on for so long, but it's a great introduction. Yeah. But then as soon as he gets off that, that court, that yeah, rink, like-, like he's just so meek and demure and like it was it was brave choices yeah hey moon pie yeah, you want to go yeah. get a drink moon pie yeah he was it was great I, oh he was amazing he was it's great. just also you could see you know when he talks to the the team he yeah. is that guy he is yeah he is yeah that yeah brash tough you know he's he's in charge and when he's challenged by that tall guy puts oh, him in his place so great such a great yeah. scene you try to knock me down but it's just it shows that his entire personality, everything about him is rollerball, especially yeah. that they took his wife. Yeah. It's all rollerball. Yeah. And then for them to take that from him, right. it's basically a death sentence. Right, right, yeah. Uh, so John Houseman was cast as Myth- Mr. Bartholomew. Mr. Bartholomew. Uh, Houseman was born. I'm going to go back in a little bit because I don't know if we're ever going to talk about John Houseman again. So I was going to go. When we his do the history. paper chase, we like to talk about the paper chase or, or silver spoons. Yes, <laughs> yeah. we'll definitely do silver spoons. I know, I know. Uh, so Houseman was born in 1902 to a father who ran a grain business in Romania, leading him to work as a speculator in the international grain markets, only turning to theater following the 1929 stock market crash. Well. I need a new profession, <laughs> perhaps acting. Uh, no, that's the funny thing, is that he actually didn't get into acting until he was almost in his 70s. <laughs> More directing then. Uh, yeah, but he got into theater. Uh, Houseman insisted that Orson Welles, then a young 18-year-old actor, play the lead part in Panic, a play based on the 1929 stock market crash that he was producing. 
Uh, Wells quit a show he was cast in after one performance to work with Hausman. Nice. Panic ran for, for all of three performances before shutting down, maybe due to the fact that no one was ready to relive the 1929 stock market crash yeah. at that time. They're all still burying the guys <laughs> that jumped off of the buildings. It was it was only a few years later. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, come on, man. Uh, but it forged a creative bond between Wells and Hausman. Uh, Hausman became involved in the Federal Theater Project, a government program to keep artists from starving during the Depression. We could use that now. Yeah. <laughs> the things we used to have. Uh, Houseman hired Wells and assigned him to direct Macbeth for the Federal Theater Project's Negro Theater Unit, a production that became known as the Voodoo Macbeth, as it was set in the Haitian court of King Henry Christoph and with voodoo witch doctors for the Three Weird Sisters. Interesting. In star three Jack. Weird Sisters? Yeah, the Three Weird... The Witches. The, the Witches, witches. Yeah. yeah. They called them Weird Sisters. That's weird. The, it's yeah. true, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and starred Jack Carter in the title role. Uh, this is funny because in my theater school, we they actually ta- still talked about this production of Voodoo Macbeth. Wow. And how it was the, one of the first times where it was like setting Shakespeare way outside the original oh, setting. Look what it started. Yeah. Good Lord. Yeah. Man, every Shakespeare production <laughs> I've ever been involved with is like, ooh, what if we do it in uh, Nazi Germany? Yeah. Ooh, what if we do it in space? <laughs> oh, what if we do it as Muppets? It works. It works if it makes – because there was a great some great Shakespeare productions I've seen. One was set on a tennis court, and it was like – I think it was As You Like It or something, but it was like high society, you sure. know, and it was like, okay, it made sense. Yeah. It was outside. Like in, when I was at school, I went to the University of Iowa and we did um, uh, The Tempest. And the way they started the storm was literally had like eight tons of corn fall from the ceiling. It literally rained corn the entire first 10 minutes of the play. It's a bit dusty. Oh my God. <laughs> we almost killed some people. Yeah, I was going to say. But, uh, but they would, what they would do afterwards is that they would, uh, the, the stagehands stage would. They would sweep all the corn together, and then that became the island. And they literally acted on this island corn, like, for the rest of the show. Weird. It was a really good, really good performance. Sounds anyway, like it. I but, did, it was, uh, but it worked. I did Othello as uh, we were European Eurotrash supermodels. See that? And that totally worked. It did work. Yeah. It did. We kept getting extended. But yeah. it was also sexy. <laughs> nudity. It was. It was. Anyway. So, yeah. But yes. Uh, definitely we can thank Orson Welles for all yes. that. Yeah, I did it. Uh, after a heavily censored production of The Cradle Will Rock in 1937, a pro-union play, the duo f- founded the Mercury Theater Project, which would go on stage to stage projects like Modern Set Julius Caesar and the infamous radio play The War of the Worlds. War of the Worlds. Look yeah. out, New Jersey. Uh, aliens coming for you. <laughs> Houseman would go on to produce Citizen Kane in 1941. Oh, uh, Spud. Oh, such a good movie. Uh, which is not available on anything right now. I was trying to because I went to the the Hearst Castle recently, and I was like, "Ah, oh, I want to watch Susan Cain oh, again." I've got it. I know, I'm sure I do too, but I always look for the streaming first, right. you know, because it's going to be the super HD 4K. Well, it's a million yeah. year old movie. You don't want to watch it that way. Ah, whatever. The uh, dispute over the writing credits for the film would end up end their partnership. Really? Um, yeah. It, not John Houseman. They brought in uh, Mankiewicz. To write the script. Yeah, yeah. And Orson Welles was like, yeah, no, I did everything. And, and Houseman was like, no, Mankiewicz wrote the script. And they argued, and, and Orson Welles took his toys and went home. There is a great underrated movie that completely fell under the radar called Mank. Yeah. Uh, starring Brian Cranston. That yeah. tells that exact story yeah. of him co-writing Citizen Kane. And it is a really great movie. It's, I believe it's directed by... Uh, it was uh, David Fincher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, and it just kind of came and went. Yeah, it was it was on Netflix. I still haven't seen it yet. Oh, it was great. Uh, actually, a friend of mine's in it. I totally forgot. I saw him post all these pictures about it when it came out. But it came out during the pandemic, and sure. like nobody, yeah, nobody really paid attention to it. But if you have a chance and you you like that kind of stuff, and, and there's a character playing John Houseman. There is. I forget who it is. It's. Uh, a, I, I'll get to him in just. It's a second. A <laughs> Seth Rogen played John Houseman. Uh, So after that, uh, he would produce The Blue Dahlia in 1946, Raymond Chandler's first screenplay. You know what's weird is we don't use the word Dahlia anymore. And it was used quite a bit. Yeah. It was was like uh, Ingenue, right? It was like the Black Dahlia. The Black Dahlia was the actress, the Ingenue that died. Yeah. Well, she wasn't really, I mean... That's how they portrayed her yeah, in the she, news and stuff. Sure. She was not anybody. I mean, like, she right. was not like a... Yeah, but I... Well, but I mean. I don't she was dis- a person. <laughs> sure, she was a person, but it's not like she was, like, an up-and-coming... She was just No, a, but that's how they portrayed her sure, in the press. Sure, Right? Yeah, yeah, I'm just, yeah. I'm, easy, I'm just trying to find out what Dahlia meant. <laughs> I, I don't... I really honestly I don't... I Yeah, I think it was, like, a... Not, not femme fatale, but kind of that, Something like... like that, yeah. Like a woman with an edge. It's a flower, really. It is. A dahlia yeah. is a flower. Yeah. So I guess it's comparing a woman to a flower? I don't know. That was a long uh, But road. you're right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> it's not used anymore, that is for sure. Uh, Houseman became the director of the drama division at Juilliard in 1968, a position he held until 1976. Uh, Houseman first became widely known to the public for his Golden Globe and Academy Award-winning role as Professor, Professor Charles Kingsfield in the film The Paper Chase the in 1973. He had the speech about being a lawyer. All of you here. I don't remember what it, the speech was, but the film was a success and launched Houseman into an unexpected late career as a character actor. Oh, he was amazing. I mean, he yeah. had the face and the eyebrows and the that gravitas. Voice. Oh, my God. He reprised his role from the paper chase in a television series of the same name, which ran from 78 to 79 and 83 to 86. Yeah, it was like that second one was like the paper chase, the the next class or something. It was because <laughs> oh, it was, yeah, cause it was yeah. about law school, I think. Right. Or, so, yeah. Something like that. Uh, during that time, he received two Golden Globe nominations for best actor in a TV series drama. TV series drama. In the 1980s, Houseman became more widely known for his role as grandfather Edward Stratton II in Silver Spoons, which starred Ricky Schroeder. Eric Schroeder, you've got a silver spoon in your mouth. And for his commercials for brokerage firm Smith Barney, which featured the catchphrase, They make money the old-fashioned way. They earn it. Another was Puritan brand cooking oil with Less saturated fat than the leading oil. Featuring the famous tomato test. Yeah, I don't know what that is. Which I, it was about the oil going in with the, to make like sauce. I, I, I vaguely remember this because I was just like, I remember literally the less saturated fat in the leading oil. Did John Houseman do the tomato test? Yeah, I think it was like showing, like he was showing the... He didn't just do the, the voiceover, he was actually... No, I think he was actually in the okay. commercial, yeah. uh, He played Jewish author Aaron Jastrow, loosely based on the real-life figure of Bernard Berenson in the highly acclaimed 1983 miniseries, The Winds of War. By Herman Woke. Yeah, uh, directed by Dan Curtis, receiving a fourth Golden Globe nomination. Uh, he declined to reprise the role in the sequel, War and Remembrance miniseries. The role then went to Sir John Gielgud. Sir John Gielgud. He's in very good company. Yeah. Uh, in 1988, he appeared in his last two roles, cameos in the films The Naked Gun from the Files of the Police Squad and Scrooged. Uh, he played a driving instructor whose mannerisms parodied many of his prior roles in the former in Naked Gun, and him, he played himself in the latter. He uh, was hilarious in The Naked Gun. Yeah. And he was also funny, as I mean, because he was just like, 
What Scrooge? I think he was the guy that was reading the book. He yeah, was the narrator. He was, yeah, he was the narrator, yeah. Uh, both films were released after his death because on October 31st, 1988, he died at age 86 of spinal cancer at his home in Malibu. Damn. Uh, Houseman had been, he's been portrayed by four different actors in three films and an episode of Doctor Who. Really? Uh, yeah. So Maude Adams was cast as Ella, uh, his wife. Or his former wife. His object of desire. His object is, yeah, yeah. Uh, Adams is a Swedish actor who is fluent in five languages and at one time wanted to work as an interpreter. She should have. Uh, she was discovered in 1963 in a shop by a photographer who asked to take her picture, which he then submitted to the Miss Sweden contest arranged by the magazine Allers, or Ayers. From there, her modeling career took off. So weird. I just, like, I know. those old days of being like, I know. Ah, let me take a picture, I'll make you a star. How How are you just a secretary? Oh, nowadays. Oh, yeah, be now. very careful if people <laughs> want to take the picture. Uh, her acting career started when she asked to appear in the 1970 movie The Boys in the Band, in which she played a photo shoot model in the opening credits. During the 1970s, she guest starred in the TV series uh, Hawaii Five-O, Kojak, and many others. Yeah. Adams was catapulted to international fame as the doomed mistress of Christopher Lee, the villain in the James Bond vil- film The Man with the Golden Gun in 1974. The Man with the Golden Gun, Mr. Bond. Uh, she was so well regarded by James Bond film series producer Albert Broccoli that she was asked to return in Octopussy in 1983, this time as a lead, the title character, an exotic and mysterious smuggler, again opposite Roger Moore. Hello, Octopussy. <laughs> While portraying a Bond girl has not always indicated continued success as an actress, Adams comments, Looking back on it, how can you not really enjoy the fact that you were a Bond girl? It's pop culture, and to be part of that is very nice. Yeah. In the 80s, she turned to TV and slowly fell away from more high-profile parts. She appeared in Playboy in 1981 to promote her film Tattoo that came out there that year. And she also appeared in Playboy 97 with other Bond girls. Uh, she hasn't done much acting since the turn of the century, mostly appearing in retrospectives of John, James Bond and the Bond Girls. Uh, she did appear on that 70s show as one of Tanya Roberts' bridesmaids, along with two other Bond Girls. That's funny. Which I totally remember and did not realize it was her. Yeah. Uh, she is now the president of a cosmetics company called Scandinavian Biocosmetics. Nice. She pivoted. She did. She did. Uh, John Beck was cast as Moonpie. 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 Who are the Christian people? Never really explained why his name is Moonpie, <laughs> but, Moon-pie. you know. Uh, Beck is a Chicago area native and wanted to become a veterinarian until he acted in a high school play to overcome shyness. Whoa. F those animals, I won't be an actor now. <laughs> Within three years, he'd moved to California to seek full-time acting gigs. Beck's television debut was as a sergeant in the 1965 I Dream of Genie episode, Russian Roulette. I actually remember that Oh, yeah? Episode. Oh, nice. yeah. I was nice. a huge I Dream of Genie Oh, it was fan. such a good show. His first regular role was on the Western series Nichols from 71 to 72 alongside James Garner. Uh, In film, one of Beck's earliest roles was as Skinny in Cyborg 2087 in 1966. Beck played Erno, who leads a revolt against a fascist government in the Woody Allen sci-fi comedy Sleeper in 1973. Really funny movie. I really enjoy Woody Allen's early comedies. They're really great. Take the Money and Run, Sleeper, uh, Everything You Want to Know About Sex, We're Afraid to Ask. Yeah. Yeah, he was uh, back in the more innocent days of Woody Allen. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That same year, he appeared as John W. Poe in the Sam Peckinpah Western Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Great movie. Yeah. Yeah. I love Peckinpah. Beck also took guest roles in television soap operas, movies, and series, one of the most popular being Dallas, in which he appears in 67 episodes. Yeah, Dallas, baby. Other, Who shot JR? Uh, apparently, it was John Beck. It was Moon Pie. It wish it, it was wasn't Moon Pie. Pie. No, it was that woman. <laughs> was Everybody that forgets. Woman. I know. I love <laughs> how that was the beauty of Dallas. We've talked about this over and over again that 
that cliffhanger was just the biggest thing in the world at the time. Yeah. Everybody lost their effing minds. Yeah. And then barely anybody rem- – I think it was Charlize Tilton. Oh, yeah. That ended up being the guy, the woman that shot him. I don't remember. Anyway, exactly. I remember who shot Smithers, but I don't remember. Maggie. (laughs) Yeah. So other guest appearances in TV shows include... Baywatch, Bonanza, Death Valley Days, Diagnosis, Murder, Gunsmoke, Hawaii 5.0, Magna P.I., Maddox, Matlock, Mission Impossible, The Mod Squad, Murder, She Wrote... Perry Mason, The Case of the Lady in the Lake, Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, Touched by an Angel, The Twilight Zone, and Waka, Texas Ranger. As a voice actor, Beck played the role of the Punisher, Frank Castle, in Spider-Man, the animated series. Yeah, yet, another, yet another actor that appeared in this animated Spider-Man show. God, it's like everybody's in it. It's crazy. As he got older, good roles became fewer and fewer, leading him to retire around 2009 after appearing in movies such as Time Cop 2, The Berlin Decision. Uh, he's still around. He just doesn't act anymore. He's great. He's got beautiful blue eyes, too. Yeah. When he was uh, sitting there in his coma. Oh, he's yeah. Like, oh, he's got yeah. really pretty eyes. I, him, him and uh, 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 Khan because were brilliant together. Yeah, they had really good chemistry. Like, really bought their friendship. Yeah. yeah. He was also you know really good as the meathead who loved. Yeah. And he also was like, the thing about his character that was so interesting is because he secretly wanted to be an executive because yeah. he kept yeah. talking about I want a secretary. Yeah. Like, well, yeah. What do you need a secretary for? And be like, oh, because he's gonna want one. Yeah. Yeah. He just wanted that life and like he did. He did. Yeah. Houseman, yeah. Take this and he gave him one of the pills. He's like, I want to dream as an executive, <laughs> but executives when they dream, they dream of being you, Moon Pie. <laughs> Moses Gunn was cast as Cletus. Uh, he was their former uh, coach. Uh, a character actor of film and television, Gunn also enjoyed a successful career on stage. He performed many Shakespearean roles in Joseph Papp's Shakespeare in the Park, winning an Obie Award for his portrayal of Aaron in Titus Andronicus. He was so such a great actor. Gunn won a second Obie for his work in the Negro Ensemble Company produced First Breeze of Summer, which moved to Broadway. For his role in the Broadway play The Poison Tree, he received a 1976 Tony Award nomination for Best Actor. Nice. Uh, he appeared in a number of TV shows and movies as mobster Ellsworth Raymond Bumpy Jonas in the first two Shaft movies in 71 and 72. Based on an actual real character. Yeah. Booker T. Washington in the 1981 movie Ragtime, a performance which won him an NAACP Image Award. Yeah, we're going to have to do that movie. That yeah, movie oh, yeah. Was, yeah. Uh, it wasn't a huge hit, but it was like... There's so many people in that movie. Yeah, and, and it, it was yeah. kind of big at the time. I yeah. remember when it came out, and it was like everybody was really... Uh, Interested in it? I don't know. It was weird. It was James Cagney's last movie. Uh, he was also as Chiron, the childlike Empress, em, Empress's imperial physician in the 1984 film The Neverending Story. Neverending Story. Which is funny because, like, I totally can see him with the weird stuff yeah. on his head and, like, yeah. He was nominated for an Emmy Award in 1977 for his role in the television miniseries Roots. Yeah, another great one. Great. Gunn appeared in six episodes as atheist shop owner Carl Dixon on Good Times in 1977. A really progressive part yeah. for the time. Uh, there weren't a lot of atheists on TV. No, no. Uh, he was also boxer-turned-farmer Joe Kagan on Little House on the Prairie from 77 to 81, appearing in five episodes. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah. He appeared in Amityville 2, The Possession, in 1982, uh, in Firestarter in 1984. I remember him in Firestarter. Yeah. Uh, in the 87 TV movie Bates Motel, starring Bud Court and Lori Petty. Interesting. Uh, which i got to be honest, I've never seen. 
I need to find it because I I love Psycho and I do not. Bud Court and Lori Petty sounds fascinating. Bud Court is he the one from Harold uh, and Maude? Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. I wonder was he playing? He must have been playing Perkins. Unless yeah, it wasn't or, about Perkins, it was about the hotel. Maybe it was a new owner or something. I'm, yeah. We'll have to look that up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. Uh, and he was also in Leonard Part 6 that same year. Yes. Seven. <laughs> Nominated for an Academy Award. Along with everyone else in Leonard Part 6. Leonard Part 6. He also co-starred with Avery Brooks on the television series A Man Called Hawk in 1989. Yeah. Uh, he was also as Moses Gage in Father Murphy for 34 episodes from 81 to 84. And in 89, Gunn appeared in two episodes of The Cosby Show as two different characters. His final acting role was as murder suspect Risley Tucker in Three Men in Adina, an episode of Homicide Life on the Street. Oh, baby. That is such a great show. Did you watch Homicide? I've never watched it. Andre Brower, young, yeah. skinny, and that just was, um, smoking. The the Wire guy, right? Mm-hmm. David Simon? Yes. Is that his name? Based yeah. on the Baltimore Homicide Department. Yeah. Had an ama- Ned Beatty, Andre Brower, uh... Also had, it was the first appearance of Munch. Um, oh, yeah? The character uh, by the comedian uh, uh, who just died recently. Uh, I know you're talking about. But Munch was on, like, every show. Yeah. He, he was the one character. He was, appeared on everything. Yeah, he was yeah. even on the X-Files Yeah, Munch. Yeah. Um, but yeah. it was an amazing cop show. One of the best. And the one episode... I remember his episode. One of the greatest episodes, and it was based on a true story, was Vincent D'Onofrio gets pushed on the subway, and he gets hit by a train, and this actually happened. And it took him between the train and the the platform, and it spun his body around, and he was still alive. Oh, God. But once they moved the train, his body was going to unscramble, and all of his guts were going to fall out, and he was going to die instantly. So. They had they help, he had to help solve his crime and and they were oh, wow. waiting to get his family to say goodbye to him before they but they still had to move the train right. to get the train going. It is an amazing wow. episode. That's if crazy. You watch that episode of Homicide, and I dare you not to get into that show. No, all right, all right. Uh, Moses Gunn died from complications of asthma in Guilford, Connecticut, on December sixteenth, nineteen ninety three, at the age of sixty four. It's really young, and that's yeah. a really interesting way to go. I mean, not interesting, but a horrible way to I go. Yeah, honestly, by nineteen ninety three, I didn't think people still died from asthma. I think like, people still do. I, that's crazy to me. Yeah, I, I mean, it's the severity of your asthma. Yeah, there's some people that have it so bad that just right, you know right. having just, a little scoop yeah. scoop doesn't help. Yeah. Uh, Pamela Hensley was cast as Mackie. Uh, she was the first uh, the first woman that was with him that then kind of ran away but was still in the movie. She was really good. They did do they did not do her any favors with the makeup. Yeah. They made her look They gave her some raccoon eyes that were it was not flattering. Also they needed to give her a little powder. She was yeah, a little oily. Yeah. And then like the when the, she when she was in the party and he saw her in the party. They even gave her worse makeup. And I know she was supposed to look sad yeah. or whatever, but come on. Yeah. Uh, she was an L.A. native. Uh, Hensley is most well known for playing Princess Ardala in Buck Rogers in the 25th Century Pilot movie and in a few guest appearances in the series. Hey, guys. Oh, hey. Hey, Colonel Wilma Deeran here. Hi. Oh, we used to have such a rivalry, the princess and I, because <laughs> she was after Buck. Yeah. And, mm, even though Buck and I are friends, we kind of had a little bit of a crush on each other. Yeah. So I couldn't really be happy with her going after him. But as a person, the actress, 
Such a doll. A sweetheart. Yeah. We were such good friends. We used to have tea all the time. Wow. Well, anyway, I gotta get back, because Buck and, and Twiggy are getting into the shenanigans <laughs> yeah. again. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, be careful. Bye. It's always nice when she pops in. She does. She must like. I don't know. The future has like some weird signal that it. Does, they do every time they hear it. It's like you know. I think she calls it the the ear burning sensor. <laughs> My ears are burning. Uh, I think she just has all of our our podcasts. She's listened to all of them, and she's just waiting for the day <laughs> when it's like, oh, yes. oh, 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 I gotta go, Buck. Oh uh, yeah, they they. That's an they, interesting. They thing. have all of them. Yeah, they've already been listened to. So she's. Yeah. Wow, we're dead in her <laughs> reality. That's got to be weird, yeah. too. Uh, <laughs> she has made numerous guest appearances in TV shows such as... Banachek, Emergency, Macmillan and Wife, Adam 12, Ironside, The Rockford Files, The Six Million Dollar Man, Vegas, Fantasy Island, The Love Boat, and BJ and the Bear. The same year that Roll Brawl was released, she also appeared in Doc Savage, Man of Bronze, and in all 24 episodes of the final season of Marcus Welby, M.D. We keep hearing a lot about Doc Savage. I, I'm going to have to watch this movie. Yeah. I, it's come up like four times in the last two yeah. months. Uh, yeah. She would have a recurring role in Kingston Confidential in 1977. Her final role was in the crime drama Matt Houston, starring Lee Horsley, appearing in 69 episodes from 1982 to 1985. Yeah. It was another, like... Remington Steele. Lee Horsley. Yeah, he was uh, an oil baron that yeah. decided he wanted to become a private yeah. investigator. solve crimes. <laughs> it's like, really? Okay. It was great, though. Lee Horsley was extremely charismatic. Oh, yeah. And he yeah. did that movie, Sword and Sorcery, yeah. that we're going to cover, where he was crucified in that movie. Oh, yeah. And he pulls his oh. hands out of it and then is able to fight fine, even though he was completely it's crucified. It's funny. I... I've seen that scene, but I didn't realize it was from that movie. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea. Horsley. Oh, oh. Matt Houston. Uh, after Matt Houston, she retired from acting. Uh, she, yeah. <laughs> like, I can't do this anymore. She reemerged in the literary world in 2004 with the publication of a small cookbook called The Jewish Sicilian Cookbook, authored under the name Pamela Hensley Vincent. Interesting. She's been married to television, exe- television executive producer E. Duke Vincent since working together in Matt Houston. Nice. So uh, she could have worked if she wanted to. It just seems like she yeah, didn't want to. I just, I think that she was like, yeah, I'm good. I'm done. Yeah. Uh, Barbara Trentum as Daphne. She was the second lady, the the one that uh, <laughs> took over from Mackie, I guess. Yeah, she was uh, very ambitious. Yes. And drugged yes. out. Yeah. Oh, very drugged out. It's like... She wasn't ingratiating herself no. to Jonathan E. Jonathan E. was a stepping stone for her to get to a, a bigger executive or right. something. And yeah. all the drugs made those loose lips sink some ships. They did. Uh, Trentum is from Brooklyn, but moved to London to study at Oxford in 1966. Nice. She became a model, appearing on a number of magazine covers in the early 70s. Her film debut came in 1972 with The Possession of Joel Delaney, starring Shirley MacLaine. Okay. Uh, she didn't work a terrible amount. Uh, in 1976, she performed in the action drama Skyriders and had a cameo in the British-German television series The Girl from Outer Space. Okay. In 1978, she appeared in the produced-for-television horror film Death Moon, and in 1979, an episode of the adventure series A Man Called Sloan. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. In 1980, while working in Los Angeles as a reporter and producer of Those Amazing Animals, she met English actor and comedian John Cleese at a Monty Python performance. Oh. They married in 1981. Their daughter, Camilla, was born in 1984. Nice. In 1987, the couple separated and three years later divorced. Oh. Uh, during her marriage to Cleese, her love for art was reawakened, and she began a third career as a painter. Nice. Her preferred medium being oil paint. 
I'm, it must be insufferable to be married to John Cleese. I'm sorry. I love him. but oh <laughs> I my love God. him too, but I, I would have one meal with him and that would be enough Ugh. for me. <laughs> In 1993, she moved to Chicago where she met the lawyer George Covington. The two married in 1998 and lived in Lake Bluff, Illinois. She built up an art studio which became the meeting place and source of inspiration for local artists. She was also co-founder of Artists on the Bluff, a nonprofit organization for artists. She was a member of the Art Association of Jackson Hole and organized events and art fairs there. Nice. She was very arty. She was. She, she did her thing. She found her love. Uh, unfortunately, she died on August 2nd, 2013 at Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Chicago, age 68, from complications from leukemia. Oh, man. Yeah. Too soon. Too, too young. Too young. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Shane Rimmer was cast as Rusty, the Houston team executive and head coach. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, Rimmer was a Canadian actor and screenwriter who spent the majority of his career in the United Kingdom. Yeah, I did, eh? Uh, he was the self-proclaimed, pl- the self-proclaimed rent-a-yank of the British entertainment industry. He appeared in over 160 films and television programs from 1957 until his death in 2019. Nice. Usually playing North American characters. Uh, Rimmer had a long-running association with TV producer Jerry Anderson, including the series Thunderbirds from 1964 to 66. Thunderbirds, so unsettling. Which, by the way, is on Peacock. And if you can, it was it is the most immaculately clean version of anything I've ever seen. Really? It was, I started watching an episode last night, and I was blown away by how ex- incredibly crisp it was. Oh, yeah. I love the Thunderbirds like, as a it kid. Was, I oh. had the toys. I had, but it's such a weird... That weird time of the puppet movies with the marionette uh, yeah, movies. Yeah, it, it, It's so it's, perfectly it's lampooned weird. by uh, Trey Parker yeah, and yeah. Matt Stone, Team America. But if you have a chance, check out Thunderbirds because it it's yeah. really well done. It, it, it's, it, it is a live-action TV show. It just happens to be done with puppets. <laughs> but they're like uh, international they, yeah, they fight. spies or rescuers yeah. or something. Uh, so he was the voice actor behind the character of Scott Tracy, one of the many Tracy brothers on Thunderbirds. I'm Scott Tracy. I'm a Thunderbird. <laughs> Rimmer also wrote scripts and provided uncredited voices for Anderson's subsequent Super Marionation Productions, Captain Scarlet and the Mysterions, yeah. uh, between 67 and 68, Joe 90 in 68 and 69, and The Secret Service in 1969. All of these are really Interesting to watch, especially. Yeah. I mean, I think we're going to have to do like a puppet month. Oh yeah, but uh, but if you have a chance to see any of these movies, it, it's it's incredible what they did with the sets, yeah, and the vehicles and all this stuff. I mean, it's not you know, it's not going to knock your socks off in today's standards. But no, if you no. think about when it was done and the fact that the, the scale of these puppets and everything, yeah, yeah. It, it's amazing. He also appeared in episodes of the live-action series UFO in 1970 and The Protectors between 72 and 74. He provided voices for Space 1999 uh, in between 75 and 77 and guest starred in one of its episodes, Space Brain. Space Brain. 1976. His appearances also include roles in films such as... Dr. Strangelove, The Spy Who Loved Me, Gandhi, Out of Africa, Crusoe, Spy Game, and Batman Begins. During his career, Rimmer appeared uncredited in, among other films, You Only Live Twice, The Dirty Dozen, Diamonds Are Forever, and Star Wars. He also appeared in the first three Christopher Reeve Superman films, playing a different part in each film. Mr. Luthor. <laughs> he is also believed to have provided the voice for the character Hamilton, played by Robert Dix in Live and Let Die. He was the second voice of Louis Watterson in the Cartoon Network series The Amazing World of Gumball from 2014 and 2019. Did you watch that? No. No. Uh, I've heard good things about it. Sure. 
but uh, the episode The Agent was his final role before his death in 2019 at the age of 89. Good run. Yeah. Bert Quoke uh, was uh, the Japanese doctor. Oh, I love this guy. <laughs> Quoke was best known for playing Kato Fong, Inspector Clouseau's manservant in the Pink Panther film series. Oh, my God. It was the best part of those <laughs> movies was when Clouseau was like, don't attack me, don't attack me. He's like, no, 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 no. But he was still would. And it was always like these... Yeah, yeah. Super slow mo. You would see. <laughs> it would cut back and forth. Oh my god! Amazing. The guy was great in everything that he did. Uh, the character was first introduced in a shot in the dark in 1964, the second film in the series, and was a role that Quark would reprise on six other occasions until the 2006 series reboot. The running gag, as Jim said, was that Cato was ordered to attack Clouseau when he least expected it to keep him alert, <laughs> usually resulting in a ruined romantic encounter or Clouseau's flat being completely destroyed. Cato, no! <laughs> Amid the chaos, the phone would ring and Cato would calmly answer it before dutifully handing the phone to his employer and being thumped by Clouseau. Oh, God. Oh, I love this movie so much. I know, yeah, yeah. Coke had a long career working in British television and voice acting for radio drama, video games, and television commercials. Uh, he would pass on May 24th, 2016, at the age of 85 from cancer. God, cancer, man. Yeah. He had a long run. He had a good run. Yeah, but still, I, it always breaks my heart that people live such a long life and then they succumb to such a horrible disease. Yeah. Richard Le Parmentier as Bartholomew's aide. Uh, Le Parmentier. Labe Parmentier is another American expat in Britain, most well-known for his role in Star Wars as Admiral Motti, <laughs> the first person to get force-choked by Darth Vader. We're not impressed with your sorcerer's ways, Vader. <laughs> Let him go, Vader. Uh, later, he would play the acerbic police officer Lieutenant Santino in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah, he was so good. He was like He's a, great such a snot. Yeah. He was so different in that movie. But yeah. I could not look at him in this movie without thinking of Star Oh, Wars. I know, I know, I know. Uh, he Unfortunately, he would die suddenly during a visit to family in Austin on April 15th, 1993, at the age of 66. Oh, man. Uh, could not find a reason why. There was no uh, diagnosed reason. Uh, but it was Darth sad. Vader. He was literally in town for like a week, and he passed away while he was in town. Darth Vader finally so got that finally first got him. Finally got him. Uh, <laughs> Who has the last laugh now? <laughs> uh, Robert Ito was cast as Connor, the strategy coach for the Houston team, who gets shouted down so unfairly. <laughs> hey, guys, guys, I'm just trying to help you. I'm just trying to... Houston! 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 Fine! Fine! Whatever. It's like, they're going to use karate on you. Houston! Houston! It's I like, don't need to be on. here, you idiots. Yeah. Uh, Ito actually started as a ballet dancer at the National Ballet of Canada. That's incredible. Ito is best known for playing the role of Sam, Fu- sorry, Sam Fujiyama on the NBC series Quincy Emmy, appearing in 146 episodes over seven seasons. That's where I know him from. I yeah. love that show. Yeah. I, I had such a huge talent crush on, uh, uh, I was going to say Larry Hagman, Jack Klugman. <laughs> Jack Klugman, yeah. He was one of my, Jack Klugman was one of my favorites. Jack Klugman. But uh, yeah, Sam was awesome yeah. on Quincy, because Quincy... Quincy is such a weird show. So Quincy is a he's a, a medical examiner, you know, does autopsies and stuff. But he's like, I don't you're not investigating it good enough. I'm gonna investigate it. So he had to go solve all he not only had to cut the bodies up, but he had to solve the crimes too. Wow. Wow. I've ne- I need to watch it. I'm pretty sure it's on Peacock, so I'm probably gonna watch it at some it's point. It's great. Yeah. It's a great show. 
after appearing in a number of movies, Ito started doing voice work. Voice roles include such programs in films as... Avatar The Last Airbender, Captain Planet and the Planeteers, Animaniacs, Bonkers, Batman The Animated Series, Jackie Chan Adventures, Fantastic Max, Superman The Animated Series, SWAT Kids, The Radical Squadron, My Little Pony and Friends, Where on Earth is Carmen Sandiego, Biker Mice from Mars, Quack Pack, Capital Critters, Pro Stars, Justice League, Darkwing Duck, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, Iron Man, The Karate Kid, A Pup Named Scooby-Doo, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, Rambo and the Forces of Freedom, The Amazing Chan and the Chan Clan, Savage Dragon, Tailspin, Chuck Norris, Karate Commandos, The Sylvester and Tweety Mysteries, All Grown Up, The Mummy, The Animated Series, Teen Titans, Trouble in Tokyo, The Woody Woodpecker Show, The 1999 Version, The Wild Thornberries, Johnny Quest vs. the Cyber Insects, and Goggles... Man, a lot of uh, inappropriate. So many. We all those weird, inappropriate kids animated shows in the eighties. He was involved in. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the Rambo one was the most. The yeah. Rambo and the Forces of Freedom was just the you, weirdest. Show. You know that ran for three seasons. Oh yeah. No, I know because they were able to. <laughs> it's so weird. And then, of course, because Rambo had one, Chuck Norris had to follow suit. Have his had own to. cartoon. Had to. Listen, I just need a cartoon, too. Look, he's got a cartoon. I need a cartoon. I'm going to kick you. <laughs> well, but he's the toughest man alive. Apparently. I am. My beard will beat you up. <laughs> Unless you... <laughs> yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, so he just worked a lot. He did a lot of voiceover. Uh, he hasn't worked since 2008, but is still around. because yeah, uh, he's, he's exhausted from doing all the voices for a thousand shows. I'm... Yeah, I think he's in his 90s now, but... Uh... Biker Mice from Mars is another one I'd like to check out. Yeah, I remember that. I remember when that was on. It was there was a. I remember there was an NES video game, Biker Mice from Mars, and the Radical Squadron is like so eighties. Radical SWAT cats, the Radical Squadron, SWAT cats, the Radical Squadron, man. I all of them. Uh, Although I will say, Savage Dragon was my favorite comic book of all time. Oh wow! They did like a thirteen episode series, uh, uh, animated series that did not take off. Uh, but it was not very good. <laughs> well, I also adored Johnny Quest, the original series as a oh, kid. Yeah. And then the reboot of Johnny Quest was not very good. Yeah, it was yeah. just, ugh. It missed yeah. all the fun stuff from the beginning. You know, Mike Pence got his start on Johnny Quest. What? Playing Race Bannon. What? I'm kidding. He looks exactly like Race Bannon. <laughs> okay. okay. I was like, what? <laughs> uh, Ralph Richardson was cast as the librarian. Uh, Richardson was an English actor who, with John Gilgood and Laurence Olivier, was one of the trinity of male actors who dominated the British stage for much of the 20th century. Yes. Uh, his film career began as an extra in 1931. He was soon cast in leading roles in British and American films, including Things to Come in 1936, based on the H.G. Wells novel of the same name. Nice. The Fallen Idol in 1948, directed by Carol Reed. Long Day's Journey into Night in 1962, directed by Sidney Lumet, starring Catherine Hepburn, Jason Robards, and Dean Stockwell. That's right, you old poop. <laughs> and Dr. Zhivago in 1965. Or as my stepdad used to call it, Dr. Zhigavoo. <laughs> oh, wow. Zhigavoo. All right. Uh, he received nominations and awards in the UK, Europe, and the US for his stage and screen work from 1948 until his death. Nice. Uh, Richardson was twice nominated for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, first for The Heiress in 1949, and again, posthumously for his final film, Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes, in 1984. Yeah, Greystoke. They really worked hard to try to get uh, Tarzan Tarzan going. They've, multiple times in the last 40 years, they've tried, and it's just not been good every time. I loved Tarzan as a kid. I loved the old black and white Tarzan movies. Because I like the guy. Look, 
BJ and the Bear Tarzan, you hang out with a monkey? Yeah. I'm in. <laughs> uh, you got a knife on your belt? Yeah. Oh, baby, I'm yeah. in. Yeah. Richardson had uh, passed. Richardson passed from a stroke at the age of 80 in uh, 1984. Throughout his career and increasingly in later years, Richardson was known for his eccentric behavior on and off stage. I'm strange. He was often seen as detached from conventional ways of looking at the world, and his acting was regularly described as poetic or magical. Yes. I see the world as a giant orange to be peeled and juiced. I just I like the fact that one of the reasons James Conn wanted to do this movie was because Ralph Richardson was cast in it. Yeah. And in the scene they were in, Ralph Richardson essentially just talked to a computer the entire time. (laughs) (laughs) So Rollerball's arena sequences were shot at the Rudy Saddlemeyer Hall in Munich, Germany. Munich. Yeah. This hall was selected because it's the only sports arena in the world with a near circular profile. Interesting. So the, the production took over and redressed, redressed for shooting. It was actually built and used during the 1972 Olympics for basketball games. Uh, most of the stuntmen they hired didn't know how to skate, so they spent a few weeks at the arena preparing for the action sequences. Ugh. After the first action sequence was shot, all of the stuntmen were terribly bruised, so they added in the pads to keep production on schedule. Fine, we'll give you pads, you bunch of babies. Yeah, as they, as John Beck said, he they had a lot of strawberries all over their legs. Nice. Yeah. Uh, contrary to rumors, no one died during the filming of any of the stunts in the film. However, there were some serious injuries, including a few that required hospitalization. I would imagine with motorcycles and wood. Yeah. Just by accident, even. I mean, somebody gets a leg run over or something. Yeah, there's a lot going on. Yeah. In light of their contribution, Rollerball was the first major Hollywood production to give screen credit to its stunt performers. Good. Listen all of them by name. Well, they should have. They all deserved it. Yeah. The game of Rollerball was so realistic that the cast, extras, and stunt personnel played it between takes on the set. Nice. Uh, At the time of the film's release, Howard Cosell interviewed Norman Jewison and James Caan on ABC's Wild World of Sports, showing clips from the film and with the two of them explaining the rules of the game. Audiences who saw the film so loved the action of the game that Jewison was contacted multiple times by promoters requesting that the quote-unquote rights to the game be sold so that real Rollerball leagues could be formed. (laughs) Uh, Jewison was outraged as the entire point of the movie was to show the sickness and insanity of contact sports and their allure, eh? Yeah. United Artists was determined to make the MPAA give them a fil- give the film a PG rating, but the ratings board deemed that the film's violence far exceeded a PG rating and that the film was a solid R. Solid R. It probably would be PG-13 now. Yeah. That's my guess. The movie ended up making around $30 million off a $5 to $6 million budget. Movie had mixed reviews. Uh, Gene Siskel, the Chicago Tribune, gave the film two uh, stars out of four and called it a... A movie in love with itself. And... Fapid, pretentious, and arrogant. Not even John Houseman's fine performance as a villainous corporate director is sufficient to make Rollerball tolerable. The only way to enjoy it, I suppose, is to cheer at the Rollerball's games mayhem. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, you missed the point, bud. Yeah, yeah. In 1985, IJK Software produced a game called Rocket Ball for the Commodore 64 computer with the scoring rules based on the game in the movie. There was a game in, I think it was Final Fantasy X, that was very similar to to Rollerball. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Oh. In 1989, Microids published an unofficial successor called Killer Ball for the Atari ST, Amiga, Amistrad, CPC, and MS-DOS. Uh, the film was remade in 2002, starring Chris Klein, Jean Reno, LL Cool J, Rebecca Romaine, and Naveen Andrews, and directed by John McTiernan. Oh, John McTiernan, what were you thinking? Unlike the previous film, it has a much greater focus on action, with more muted social and political overtones than the original, and takes place in the present rather than in a future dystopian society. 
Uh, upon its release, the film was critically panned, receiving criticism for the lack uh, of the original social critique. It was a box office bomb, grossing $25.9 million against a production budget of $70 million. It was absolute garbage. I saw it. It was like... It's the early 2000s. Everything was trying to be the Fast and the Furious. Triple X. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. I don't know what drug somebody was on that thought that Chris Klein <laughs> was a movie star. Yeah. He's the most boring weirdo. I'm sorry, Chris. He, he got can't. a good physique. And you were great in the American Pie movies as a big, dumb sweetie. Not his part. No. no. The only good thing... Well, there are two good things. One is LL Cool J. Yeah. Because LL yeah. Cool J is so charismatic. He's always he's great entertaining. Yeah. yeah. One of my absolute favorite things he's ever done was Deep Blue Sea. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, which he was fabulous in. Which is a much, much better movie. <laughs> and I will have to say, Rebecca Romaine's super campy... She's uh, <laughs> her performance is insane. We watched the trailer and I kept going, wait, isn't Rebecca Romaine in this movie? <laughs> and it was Gah. like, oh, yeah, yeah. Gah. She's like working out with her shirt off. It's just, it's yeah. just the dumbest. It's so effing movie. It took it, the thing about Rollerball, the original, is it's a, it's, it's like all of these other movies that we've been talking about yeah. that has a deeper meaning to it. Yeah, you yeah. know, all it's not meant to glorify. Violence. No. It's it's the whole point of rollerball. So we have this corporate takeover. There's these corporate wars. Yeah. Where corporations now it's it's a N- nations don't exist anymore. Exactly. Yeah. And and so each country is run by a different corporation. And these corporations make decisions and the way that they it's almost like a version of communism in a way because yeah. everything serves the corporation right. and the corporation serves you. Basically, the corporation gives everything you need so you don't yeah. need to complain about anything. But the whole point is to destroy any sort of individuality. Right. Everybody is the same. So they created a monster with Jonathan E. Yeah. Because yeah. he's a hero. He dominated the game. And because of an individual's achievement, right. they had to crush this. Right. Because then it's going to cause an upbringing of the other class. So it's a really deep movie about, you know, basically bread and circuses. You know, this whole thing is bread and circuses. You know, as long as you give people entertainment and food and drugs to keep them mollified, then you can, you know. And and very violent entertainment. Exactly. Well, that's, you know. like it satiates that need of. Like the Colosseum, baby. Throwing the Christians to the lions, you know. And so, uh, but what they didn't count on was that Jonathan E. Yeah. ain't going down, baby. No, and no. it completely backfired. So they keep making the game because he won't. They give him the chance to retire, right? You know, to go and live on his ranch. Yeah, but he, but he's like, okay, I'll retire. Well, you got to give me my wife. And they're like, yeah, Bleh. I mean, he literally can't. It's the last thing he has left. Right, and even when they do finally. They play their last chip, yeah. which is giving him Maud Adams back. It's it's not what he wants because it's not what he had. It's no, not no. love. It's not the pictures that it was, he watches over and she over. She wasn't again. there because she wanted to be. Right. It was it was to make him do what they wanted. Right. And then the the last shot of her there when he's watching the happy times, that yeah. he, that the 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 reality that he made up from the past. Right. 
is his it's finally him realizing that there is no going back. Yeah. Yeah. There is no there's nothing now except for rollerball. That right, is his entire right. personality. That's entirely who he is. And for them to take it away from him, like I said, is like basically killing him. Yeah. And then, you know, the last game, the championship <sighs> with New York, there's <laughs> no substitution. Everybody dying. And no rules. Yeah. And no substitutions, no rules. No time limit. And no time limit, which is like, okay. It's literally to the death. Right, and I love how they're like, hey, you signed the contract. You signed it. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, that, There's changes. It's a, the clause said if the rules change, you still have to play. And it's absolutely brutal. And, you know, they played the odds thinking that he'd probably get taken out. Yeah. The, they didn't anticipate the fact that he was too good for that. Oh, yeah. And also, like, the way that he wouldn't let Moon Pie go. Yeah. You know, Moon Pie. Yeah. Uh, spoiler alert. Yeah. Uh, Moon Pie gets effed up. Because punched in the back of the head Ugh. and so he, he becomes brain dead but jimmy khan oh that, that's that doctor this, it was uh the japanese the cool yeah. japanese doctor who was just like yeah just sign you just have to sign it must be signed it but, must be signed like, but, but no i want him to to live yeah right but you just have to sign but you have to sign <laughs> yeah it was it was crazy and then watching john houseman look you know uh. He had to scramble out because he, he lost. I really want to know what happened after this. Like, did it, what, I mean, how did it, you know, was there a, an uprising because people realized they can be individuals and that the corporation is, is so shepherding them and like, well, you know. If we look at that in terms of things, yeah. reality of now, no. <laughs> no. They were just I mean, placated again. Yeah. They started a new thing, and, and yeah. somehow John Houseman disappeared, and nobody saw him ever again. Yeah. And Star Wars Chokey Chokes probably took his probably his uh, his place. Also, he was so good, the way he just gets into the violence. Oh, and yeah. Jonathan, and it's the bloodlust in everybody's eyes. The, the scene where it, it's they're at the party and it's it's uh, for his show, the Jonathan Easley show is premiering. his retirement, his retirement yeah. show, yeah, and uh, and they're showing all the clips and like man, it is edited so well, yeah, it is so uncomfortable, yeah. with how into the violence these people are. Oh, taking their drugs and watching so their thing, yeah. uncomfortable. Like, and it goes on and on and on. It's like, oh my yeah, god, yeah. I mean, they're there until the morning, yeah. You know, still laying around. Just, I mean, just even that scene, just the scene of them watching, like yeah. it's it's so God, it just made my skin crawl. Yeah, it does a really great job of. It does a great job with the action of the game. Hence, hey, let's make it for real. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But it also makes you feel bad about enjoying the violence. Yeah, yeah. Which, which you should. Exactly. I mean, that's, yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people didn't really get that. It's hard to hear a lot of times. because Yeah. James Conn pretty much talks like this. But, yeah, I mean, it's different for James Conn. Um it was just so meek. It was really weird, but it was it was hard to get it was, used to. But it, it was, was so great. great, and I think yeah. it's one of his most understated performances because it seems very simple. But what he's playing is extremely layered. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, which is precisely why. And no offense to Chris Klein, but precisely why Chris Klein can't play a part like that. What? What do you like, mean? It just doesn't. Like he doesn't have the acting chops to be able to pull that off. And I realize it's very different. The role is very different. <laughs> Every shot in the trailer, he looks like he's just super surprised. Uh-huh. Whoa! It looks like somebody just 
like some woman just pulled her top up in front of him, <laughs> and that's his expression all the time. I woke up and I'm on skates. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris Klein, poor Chris Klein. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, like Chris Klein is good at what he does. He has a very narrow range. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, he, he was fine in the American Pie movies. He was good I, in that, and yeah. he was pretty funny. It's a, a, a in my opinion, an, an underrated. Uh, uh, what's the Deadpool guy? Uh, Ryan, Ryan Reynolds. Reynolds. Underrated Ryan Reynolds movie. Uh, I think it's called Friends or Friend Zone or I don't know what it's called, but he plays a fat guy oh, that and loses familiar. a bunch of weight. Yeah, yeah. And then he comes back, and Chris Klein plays this guy that was also a nerd. Yeah. When they grew up, and now he's like a. You know, he's like a, a EMT who plays the guitar. And, and so there's kind of this rivalry between the two of them. Right. And he was really funny in that. I'll have to give Chris Klein okay. props right. for that. Right. He was good in the American Pie movies, too. Yeah. But yeah. he's just not an action hero. He's got the bod. Yeah. And he's a good-looking kid. Yeah. Old man now. But, you know, but he just never – they didn't cast him correctly. He yeah. was good for yeah. comedy. He was good for that kind of stuff. But, you know. And, look, they did a lot of these remakes where they took all of the substance out of these movies. Yeah. And just made them straight action garbage. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody seems like they've been missing the point about this movie for 50 years. Yeah. It's It's like, come on. It's an underrated film. It's great 70s stoner sci-fi. It's not, you know, it's not a uh, thrill a minute action flick. No, no. But it's the the sports sequences are really well done and engaging. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And... It's, there's no CGI, so it's all no. done by these dudes. Yeah, and it's brutal. I mean, there's some really brutal. The, yeah. the shot where the guy gets hit with the the ball Ugh. coming out of the chute. It's just brutal. There's a lot of brutality to it. It's yeah. There's some. There's definitely a lot of violence. The thing that was so interesting about it that is is very subtle is the violence in the crowd. Yeah, the way the crowd yeah. reacts to losing or winning, they lose their effing minds. Yeah, they, they beat the crap out of well, each yeah, other. Well, yeah, halfway through matches, like somebody gets knocked out, and suddenly you see fans just beating the crap out of each other. It's yeah. like, ooh, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. It's it really. There's so many little things in this movie that you can miss. Yeah, it's a it's a very understated film. Yeah. You know, considering that the whole movie is about a very violent sport, it's a very understated film. Yeah. Watch it. You're going to love it. Yeah. We're definitely going to have more 70s stoner sci-fi and definitely going to have some 80s stoner sci-fi. That's true. Because there is definitely some 80s movies that need to be talked about. Yes. Uh, There's a a wealth of awesome sci-fi. And every decade, that's the thing I love about science fiction, is you can really tell the decade by their science fiction. Yeah, and the way that they predict the future, or uh, the way that they portray the future. Right, right. The beauty of science fiction is you can really see the social construct right. of the right. decade because right. more so than any other genre, I think sci-fi deals with social issues in a sneaky way. Yeah, because yeah. you can couch it in the future, or yeah. you can couch it in this or that, and you can explore these different societal ills or these right, problems right. in a way that's not like you hate America or whatever. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, it's like yeah. you can you can do it in a way that people can digest it better more so than any other genre. Yeah. And that's why I love yeah. different decades of sci-fi. Each decade we do, we're going to tackle a different uh, Oh, yeah. Society. It'll be good. But you got your stoner sci-fi uh, chunks. Yeah. Give it a walk. Yeah. Give it a walk. Give it a walk. 
Give him a watch. Give him a watch. We'll be back next week with our stepdad show. We'll talk more about this. Yeah. I will talk about. I'm going to have finished Logan's Run, the novel, and the short story, Murder Ball, Murder Death, whatever murder, it's called. Death Ball. Roller Ball, Death Murder, or murder, whatever. Death Ball. Uh, but anyway, uh, because I do want to talk about how I really believe the late 60s helped inform all late 60s writing helped yeah. inform all the 70s like social awareness and stuff and speaking of sci-fi i know we're really late to the game on this but we're going to talk a little bit about the new indiana jones yes. movie dial of destiny which was fan fantastic if you're an indie jones fan i know yep. it's been out for a while but if you haven't seen it in the theater see it in the theater yeah bye bye <laughs> Adams was cultivated. Wow. Adams was catapulted, the most popular being Dallas when she appeared in 67 episodes. She? Didn't. Did I say she? Yeah. We're talking about John Peck, right? Yeah. Did I say she? Yeah. I, I don't <laughs> think I. It's not even. She isn't even in here. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> It's okay. Uh, well, I guess we'll listen to it again and see. I don't remember saying she. We now return to your regularly scheduled programming, Square Pegs, already in progress.